Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. Amor McKinney is out this week. I am your host, Alex Lawson, and with me is Haley Knoth. Hi, Haley. Hey, Alex. It's so good to be back with you. Um, we are recording this on Thursday, which is the uh, which, which happens to have been the day of the first Supreme Court conference since the Dobbs leak. Um, Awkward. This is, yeah, I mean, this is where the justices sit down and they talk about, you know, some of the the outstanding opinions they have to resolve. They take care of some internal business. But given that a very controversial and high-profile opinion was leaked to the media, uh, I don't know. There's been, I'm participating in it right now, but there's been a lot of, like, <laughs> take economy uh, speculation I'm envisioning something along the lines of when Regina George published the burn book in Bean oh Girls, <laughs> where it's like, well, somebody knows something. That's a fantastic mental image. Yeah, I don't know. I love um, that. I don't, that's way better than what I was picturing. I was just picturing <laughs> like a really long, awkward silence. Yeah. I mean, honestly, to the extent, I mean, if I'm being honest, like they, I'm sure they just like, got along with business and kind of like took care of these like other grievances. Now, the, the conference happens behind closed doors, but I bet it, it took place behind even sort of further closed doors of someone being yeah. like, hey, let's get our clerks in order. What the hell is going on? I don't know. I'm sure they just talked about, um, you know, the various uh, cases that are before them. But it's certainly fun to play act. All you have yeah, to do is turn on can... CNN and, and, and see what's going on there. Yeah. Definitely would be uh, fun to get some, uh, you know, Supreme Court document leak fan fiction out there. Just really harrowing tales of what's going on <laughs> these days. But, yeah, I don't know. But without lingering too long on that, we, we got to move on. We've got a great show today. We do. Um, we talked to Law360's Stephen Lerner about some issues that have popped up with um, digital court transcribing and what that means for attorneys and kind of the broader judicial system. But before that, um, I know, Alex, you have a story for us out of Texas. I sure do. We will start in the Lone Star State, where the State Bar Association um, has sued a top deputy in the state attorney general's office, basically accusing that lawyer of participating in what it views as um, a bad faith lawsuit to overturn the results of the 2020 election. If you can scare up some memory of like post-2020 <laughs> election lawsuits in your mind. So there was some fallout from that just uh, just last week. So the election, it kicked up a lot of this opposition in red states. And yeah, I think I've just recently finished covering a lot of those lawsuits, yeah. but I haven't seen anything from a bar association before. What's this one all about? Yeah, that's why I thought that this was interesting to talk about. I mean, obviously, a million lawsuits got filed. We talked about them on this show, but I think that this is an interesting case of like seeking professional sanctions over participating and stuff like that. So just to sort it all out, we are talking today about a lawsuit that was filed in reaction to a different lawsuit. So let's try and kind of, <laughs> of course. like, just let's, let, let's parse it out a little bit. The person you need to know here is Brent Webster, who serves as the first assistant attorney general for the state of Texas. 
And after the 2020 election, he joined a lawsuit that um, would prevent Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, who are all states, which are all states that were won by Joe Biden, preventing those states from appointing their presidential electors and thereby certifying the results of the popular vote. There were a ton of legal challenges floating around after the election, you know, with regard to like early voting, mail-in ballots, you know, all this stuff that was mostly driven by, you know, Trump loyalists. Now, those legal challenges almost across the board entirely failed. And in the suit that that Webster was a part of, um, this this Texas thing, the Supreme Court threw that out within like days of it being um, elevated to them. So that's all you need to know there. That's kind of okay. the that's kind of the root of this discord. And then we kind of move to a different uh, level here. Yeah. So now we're seeing this sort of professional blowback. I'm very curious what a bar association specifically would have to say about this sort of thing. I mean, I can I can wildly speculate, but I've already done that here today. So, <laughs> yeah, no, um, this is not the part of the show where we do that. So the bar doesn't see this as just, it's like, uh, oh, OK, you know, we, the government of Texas, are just filing a suit to make sure the election is legitimate or anything like that. And then right. it's like, OK, we lost the suit. The suit gets thrown out. That's the end of it. Right. But what the Bar Association is saying is, is that they say, like, by participating in this lawsuit, Webster made, like, dishonest allegations that put an undue toll on the states that were targeted in this lawsuit. According to the complaint that they filed against him last week, they wrote that those states, quote, were required to expend time, money, and resources to respond to the misrepresentations and false statements contained in these pleadings and injunction requests, even though they had previously certified their presidential electors based on the election results. So, yeah, I mean, they, they're basically saying it's frivolous, right? I mean, they're saying this is a frivolous lawsuit, nakedly political, not in good faith. Um, that's essentially what they're saying. Now, in terms of a remedy, they give, this was filed in Williams, Williamson County Court in Texas, they are giving them a lot of leeway. They just ask the court to, quote, determine and impose an appropriate sanction. So, okay. you know, the, the the various, like, retaliation measures you can take against lawyers, like, vary from state to state. Um, but they're, they're clearly allowing the court to craft a remedy if they find that one is appropriate. That's what's going on. Interesting. And so, you know, this is against a an assistant AG, which is yeah. pretty pretty significant. What's the AG's office saying about this? Yeah, so it could get a lot bigger very quickly. The suit, like you say, it's against an assistant AG, and after it was filed, the state's actual the, the actual attorney general of Texas is a guy named Ken Paxton. He went on Twitter and basically said kind of some strange stuff going on. He said he is being sued or would be sued by a similar lawsuit um, or, or with a, he, he would be hit with a similar lawsuit from the Bar Association. Thus far, hmm. I talked to Jessica Corso, who who is our Texas, one of our Texas reporters. Thus far, that hasn't happened. Um, they haven't sued the actual AG yet. Maybe it's coming down the pike. He, he okay. Yeah, interesting that he already 
said that. Yeah, he's like telegraphing it a little bit. Um, but whatever the case is, he's not been sued yet, at least as of this recording at 4.30 on Thursday. He called the Bar Association a, uh, a liberal activist group, which is something you actually hear a lot um, in red states about state bar associations. They see them as like not so, they don't really see them as like, you know, trade oversight groups or anything. They think they're like projecting progressive, uh, you know, advocacy or anything like that. But bunch of the, liberal hacks. Yeah. Well, the bar. Yeah, and the bar association's president is a woman named Sylvia Barunda Firth, and she really kind of firmly recuted that characterization. She issued a statement after the suit was filed and after Paxton made these comments, saying, "Quote." Partisan political considerations play no role in determining whether to pursue a grievance or how that grievance proceeds through the system. So she's saying we basically think that this lawsuit, this AG, this assistant AG helped to advance is um, completely meritless and not becoming of a state attorney. The big thing to watch here is sort of how wide I think the Bar Association will cast it's net in looking for professional sanctions. I don't know if they'll sue Paxton. Like I say, as of today, they haven't done it. And, you know, so much of these post-2020 election suits were kind of fly-by-night. They didn't really stand up to scrutiny. And now I think we're beginning to see, at least here in Texas, a wave of like, you can't just throw spaghetti at the wall. You might face professional mm -hmm. sanction or... Uh, uh, trying to do some stuff like that. So that's yeah. what, what we'll really be looking out for. Fascinating. Man, I really, really thought that we were done with all of our election fraud litigation coverage, but here we <laughs> well, go. Well, no, this it's is the, this is the litigation up. after the litigation. That's <laughs> what I'm saying, Haley. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, Excuse yeah. me. Well, well. anyway, I, I kind of want to shift gears here and talk about something that we both love, baseball. Baseball. Uh, but more specifically, minor league baseball, which is near and dear to my heart because I very tragically grew up in a city without a major league team. Yeah. I mean, speak on it. You're from Omaha. Um, dead set middle of the country. Did you? It's what? true. I mean, now Those you're a Dodgers chasers. fan. N now you're a Dodgers fan, which is <laughs> gross. Did you watch? Did you it, watch like well, the Cubs or the Braves or something? Any team that had like I a national... The Kansas City Royals. Oh, okay. I guess that makes Because we did, yeah. my family briefly lived in Kansas City. So. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. So I did, I, I dabbled a bit, but yeah, Omaha had um, Kansas City's feeder team, or it still does. Oh, okay. Yeah. Minor League Baseball is a great product. I go down to Coney Island for Brooklyn Cyclones a lot. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, That's good stuff. Honestly, it's it's just so wholesome. It's a good time. Great time. But, um, and they have been caught up in some, some legal intrigue yeah, for like the better part say. of a decade now. <laughs> what are we talking yeah. about this week? So this week, the minor league players um, finally reached a settlement with the MLB. And that was reached just ahead of a trial that was set for June 1st in their case over what they called starvation wages. So they're, they've been for years and years fighting for better pay. Um, the settlement has finally been reached. We don't have any details yet. But the attorneys for the MLB and the players told the court that they're ironing that out. And they'll be filing a motion for preliminary approval by mid-July. Yeah. So like I said, I mean, this has been a pretty long running thing. Um, MLB is baseball is like in such a weird spot where it's like a fixture of the American consciousness. But then like, 
you know, the owners are always crying poor and they have this kind of like vast developmental system, the minor league system that, you know, it's in a, it's in a, you know, dozens, hundreds of cities. Um, and then, you know, I mean, the, the, the collection plate doesn't always get passed around so equitably. Um, so let's kind of reset exactly how we got here and what they were suing about in the first place before we even talk about the settlement here. Absolutely. There's a ton going on here. And uh, minor league players, really, they've secured some improvements to their working conditions outside of this litigation. Mm -hmm. So bear that in mind. Um, Some of this, you know, might sound familiar. Some of it might not. But the case we're talking about specifically right now was filed in 2014. um, And it has to do with alleged violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act and various state minimum wage and overtime requirements. And so the players essentially said um, they've been working for these really, really ridiculously low wages while the MLB is just raking in profits. Um, At the time that they filed the suit, they said they were paid as little as $1,100 a month during a five-month season. Um, And they got little to nothing for postseason and off-season work. That was, um, according to them, pretty mandatory. I mean, as a spectator, I would say it also appears to be pretty mandatory. Yeah, I mean, you could just check out of like, I mean, if you like, it's like, you know, nominally voluntary, but if you don't go, like, they'll cut you or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so I actually, I got some more recent numbers from um, a group called Advocates for Minor Leaguers. And that's a nonprofit that's dedicated to... They advocate for minor leaguers, I would imagine. Yes. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I gotta explain that, Alex. It's yeah, not a, yeah. Okay. <laughs> not an explicitly straightforward name or anything. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Um, <laughs> so what do they say? They're saying that right now the median annual salary for a minor league player is just twelve grand, um, and some players are making as little as four thousand eight hundred a year. Um, both of those salaries are below the federal poverty level. And meanwhile, the group says the average MLB franchise is valued at. Close to two billion dollars. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Where there's, there's like this such a there's such a funny ecosystem with baseball, where it's like extremely rich people like own the teams, and then like, but then like because the the ecosystem is so vast, it's like okay, we're not exactly pumping money into like the A ball affiliate in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Yeah. It's like you know they'll it's kind of like a holdover from like decades past. Um, I remember long ago before I was a legal journalist, I was a sports writer for the courier news in Elgin, Illinois. And part of my job there was reporting on, because we covered mostly high school sports, but we covered people who were, who went to the high schools that we covered who were then now like in the pros or in this case, like in the minor leagues. And I like talked to like, some guys who like pitch for like the Kane County Cougars or something. They used to be a White Sox affiliate. I'm not, I'm honestly not even sure if they exist anymore. And it was like, these guys we just talk about like, Hey, I mean, I wake up and I'm playing professional baseball. I mean, this is, this is like the dream. This was like the whole thing. And I think like a lot of the, a lot of the people you talk to say that like that kind of mindset gets exploited. Um, yeah. by like being being thankful to be there or whatever. And that I think was at the thrust of this lawsuit. It now, definitely was. Yeah. So I mean, but like what has the 
I'm kind of like laying out a bunch of different um, positions there. But now, what has generally been the been Major League Baseball's stance about like why this kind of wage system, like you said, like as little as you know twelve thousand dollars a year for a professional baseball player, like why they think that's okay? The league says uh, kind of what you were just mentioning. One of their arguments is this quote, chasing a dream argument where yeah. it's, these players are out here. They're just happy to play professional baseball. Who's the league to stop them from wanting to work extra hours in service of that? Um, so that's one argument. Another argument is that the minor leaguers are salaried seasonal workers and therefore exempt from certain overtime pay requirements. Um, and then the MLB has also pointed to an overtime exemption for amusement or recreational establishments. Okay. And like we said, this this got filed in 2014. How has this been received by the court generally? Well, it's it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, yeah. Some of the MLB's defenses remain, obviously, which is why they were gearing up for trial here. Yeah. But the MLB was dealt a pretty significant blow in March when the California federal judge overseeing the case held that minor leaguers are year-round joint employees of the MLB mm. and its clubs. So not yeah. seasonal. And in particular, the judge sided with a class of Arizona players. He found that they are employees under Arizona state law and that the league had violated state minimum wage laws. The judge also rejected the league's seasonal worker argument, like I said, finding that it violated California wage statement laws. And for that one, I mentioned that one again because uh, the judge actually awarded already uh, $1.8 million to California players. Okay. So we're talking about a settlement, um, but this, you know, it, you just kind of broke down like some of the incremental, like, victories and kind of drawbacks that, that had been happening in the course of litigation if, and they were preparing for trial in what June you said? Yeah. June 1st. So had they gone to trial? Like what exactly was going to be the question before the jury or questions? I suppose. There were a few key questions left. Um, yeah. and one of those was whether the MLB's violation of Arizona's minimum wage law was willful. And then the damages stemming from its violation of Arizona wage statement law, and then also whether the MLB is liable for similar claims from other classes of players that are certified in Florida and California. And uh, it's important to note, so all told, there are four certified classes of players in this case, plus a collective action under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Okay. Um, so a lot of moving parts there. Now we have a settlement, and this is always kind of a, tricky area for us as a legal news operation when something settles in a closely watched case where, I mean, is there, is there much we can even say about this at this point? I know they haven't really publicized the terms. I mean, what are we, what are we looking at here? Yeah, unfortunately, not a lot to say right now. The parties haven't filed any details with the court. Um, they're still hammering all of that out. But we can say, you know, the big questions here are really how much money the players are going to come away with. And maybe more notably for, you know, future generations of players, what injunctive relief could be a part of this deal? I mean, they could be setting higher pay minimums or other protections for 
for the players that they don't currently have. So the players in the league have until July 11th to file that motion for preliminary approval, of course. So we'll just we'll have to wait and hopefully get our answers then. This week, we're diving into the minutia of court transcripts, the job traditionally done by stenographers typing feverishly to document all of the utterances in a court proceeding is quickly being replaced with digital reporting and voice recognition software. But the transition hasn't always been smooth, with records often rendered incomplete or entirely blank, creating a number of headaches for the legal system. Here to talk through those developments and their implications is Law 360's Stephen Lerner. Welcome to Pro Se, Stephen. Well, thank you, Alex, for having me. It's great to be here today. Such an interesting story you wrote. It's a little bit weedy, but quite important, I think, to people who work in the courts, consult court records. And I just want to set the stage a little bit. We're talking about digital court reporting. Which, has re- which is beginning to, and in some places has entirely replaced, um, manual court reporting, which is to say transcripts. Just give us like the lay of the land about this new sort of technological development. Yeah, so to give the lay of the land, you kind of have to look over the past few decades where the number of stenographers or court reporters across the country have been in a decline. Um, the amount of decline is a bit debatable. Some stenographers don't see the situation as dire, but those who support digital reporting uh, technology for the courts see it as way more dire. Uh, They often point to this report back in 2014 known as the the Ducker Report that says that the uh, number of stenographers in the United States could go from 32,000 in 2013 to as low as 23,000 in 2023. Um, This is certainly a point of contention. Um, Some on the stenographer side see the the labor deficit as depending on the region of the country, Um, whereas the digital court reporting side sees it as as, as pretty pretty big and a big issue. Um, At the heart of the debate is really money. You know, you have stenographers who want to protect their jobs. At the same time, you have digital court reporting companies that want to emphasize the shortage for profit. So this is kind of what's driving that divide. So assuming we have this legal system and you need digital court reporting technologies, um, the problem is really going to be, is that up to task? And we're seeing some issues with the technology. So the story- Yeah, let's talk about that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to, you talked to a lot of lawyers for this story, which was super interesting. I think you've really like laid out very well, like why this became imperative, but it seems like it's been a little bit of a, a tough transition here. What are the issues that we're seeing play out? So historically, most trial and deposition transcripts prepared by live stenographers. But with some traditional stenographers in short supply, courts across the country are adopting more court reporting digital equipment. And this trend has been going on for the past few decades. This is technology that that uses audiovisual recording equipment to document hearings and uses speech recognition to prepare transcripts. Some attorneys who I've spoken to recognize the potential benefit in this, as digital court reporting systems don't require the cost of a trained stenographer. 
The tools can also be used for depositions. But as this technology gains popularity, there have been some rough patches. The attorneys that I spoke to over the story have experienced firsthand the pitfalls of digital court reporting technology. One attorney told me about a situation 25 years ago. It was his second ever jury trial. The lawyer said he was nervous. He spoke fast. There was also a malfunction with the recording equipment. As a result, a disclaimer was added to the beginning of the closing argument on the transcript because the recording could not fully understand what he said. And while the tech has improved over the years, it's still faulty, to say the least. Another attorney I spoke to said that he still faces glitchy recording equipment and depositions during the last two to three years, including one instance when the device just suddenly lost power. Another attorney faced similar glitches during a deposition in 2019. He also said that the quality of the transcripts produced by digital court reporters is very hit or miss, as he said. Now, while they don't speak for all attorneys, mm-hmm. they did tell me that they prefer to have a human stenographer who is certified, uh, who can handle uh, trials and depositions because they're properly trained and they're taking down the notes in real time. Yeah, that makes sense. So you also wrote about how, um, as is the case with many issues, the shortcomings of this technology really disproportionately affect minorities. What's the story there? So many digital court reporting tools, but not all, use something called automated speech recognition, or ASR for short. This is technology that converts speech to text. Uh, Think of uh, digital voice assistants like Amazon. I'm not even going to say the name. Otherwise, my device will turn on right now. (laughs) You know who she is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or or the Google Assistant. These these are examples of technology people use. If you've ever used these tools, you know that they're pretty helpful, but sometimes these voice assistants get the answer wrong or they just misunderstand what you're saying. Well, similar technology is being used in legal proceedings, and this is especially problematic for certain people. A study from Stanford in 2020 examined audio from these popular voice assistants, Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and IBM, and found significant racial disparities. For every 100 words analyzed by the speech-to-text platforms, the researchers spotted 19 errors for white speakers and 35 for Black speakers. In particular, error rates for Black men topped 40%. These tools are producing less accurate results for people who also spoke African-American Vernacular English, or AAVE. I spoke to a researcher from the study who essentially said the cause of the problem is a lack of training data from different demographics. Mm -hmm. In other words, the people from the tech companies training the data may not be that diverse. And if the training data came from mostly white people, this creates a feedback loop where the people benefiting the most from the products are the ones feeding it more training data. Now, imagine unleashing this faulty tech in the U.S. legal system, which has historically been unjust for people of color, in particular Black people. This speaks to the problem of tech companies um, having diversified data sources and ensuring the people who create the technology is also diverse. Now, to be fair, human court reporters have bias as well. Another study from 2019 also found similar accuracy concerns, but it is digital court reporting that is growing in popularity and needs to be addressed. There's so many interesting pieces to that. Uh, One of the other issues that you wrote about is that, I mean, we're we're kind of talking about areas where you know physical stenographers are being entirely replaced by digital systems and software 
But this is also something that even where there are still human stenographers, there are like, I know you, you wrote about there are like new tools and new tech um, that are kind of giving them some headaches. Like, what is that looking like? Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, everyone has new tech. That includes stenographers. Yeah. Um, I uh, spoke to uh, the CEO of a company called Stenograph. They have been providing hardware and software for stenographers for many, many years. Last year, Stenograph launched a digital court reporting division. Since then, some stenographers have complained that tra the traditional stenography tools have been malfunctioning. This includes allegations of server issues, problem with the code, and a drop Bluetooth connection. Now, the company attributed these problems to the rise of remote depositions, as yeah. well as the ongoing supply chain disruptions impacting the chip shortage. Uh, some stenographers have gone to Facebook to complain about the company. It serves as another example of the big divide between digital core reporting and the human stenographers. So can you give us a sense of the stakes here? I mean, why? Obviously, this um, you've laid out really well how this affects, um, you know, attorneys and people in court in general. But why should everyone be concerned about this? That's a good question. So lawyers first will be impacted in terms of accuracy and transcript script issues, of course, but it's certainly bigger than just lawyers. We're talking about the fate of the legal system. More courtrooms will adopt this technology, which could mean more missing testimony and incomplete transcripts. Uh, here's a recent and shocking example. Most people remember Daryl Brooks, who was charged with driving a car through a parade and killing six people last November. Ten days before that, Brooks was released from jail on $1,000 bail on a separate charge of running over another person with his car. Court officials wanted to review the transcript to see why the bail was set so low. There was just one problem. That transcript doesn't exist. I spoke to the district court administrator. They told me that it was a problem with the digital court reporting equipment that is behind the lack of a transcript. Essentially, the digital recording system was not integrated with the old audio system. Now, proponents in the digital recording industry will say that a human needs to operate this technology at all times. But then there are some stenographers who claim that there are still issues with that human because they may not be certified, they may not be trained properly. Not to mention the fact that these digital operators are usually paid less than stenographers. So even if a person is operating the new tech, there could still be glitches. And so that's why it's, it matters, because it's just going to disrupt the entire legal system. Such an interesting uh, look into the really the nuts and bolts of how the legal system is supposed to work and the importance of having quality records. Um, I would... Definitely recommend everyone read Stephen's story and uh, Stephen Lerner. Thank you so much for uh, joining Pro Se to uh, talk it through with us. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And uh, Haley, this is uh, quite a story you have for us. Um, I'll just give you the floor. I certainly have something off for us to talk about, Alex. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, we discussed this a little bit in our production meeting yesterday, but I want to ask, what comes to mind when you see this Law 360 headline? 
Texas family court judge reprimanded for shackling attorneys. I'm so glad you framed it this way. I wanted to have the listeners keyed into this conversation as well. So peek behind the curtain. You know, we do, much like any legal publication, we do tend to like use euphemisms and like just kind of like weird verbiage sometimes in our headlines. I've done it myself where like it's not really clear exactly what's happened. And to be just to answer your question, when I legitimately when I was researching stories that we were going to talk about and I saw reprimanded for shackling attorneys, I literally thought that we were using a euphemism to be like, oh, she's this judge is restricting attorneys or mm-hmm. she's taking a heavy hand in how they do their work. But yeah, that was my reaction too. It's we're talking about a literal shackling. Yes, we are. <laughs> so in this instance, the judge was physically handcuffing attorneys to chairs in the jury box without any <laughs> finding of contempt first. That's important to know. And another thing I want to mention right off the bat here is that both of these attorneys are black and the judge is white. Okay. This- so really bad look. <laughs> important context uh, for what we're talking about. There was some kind of ethical breach here is, is, is yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The state, uh, the Texas State Commission on Judicial Conduct uh, recently found that the judge had failed in her ethical duties and issued a public reprimand. So that's the, the crux of the story here. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that the Texas State Commission on Judicial Conduct has weighed in here because, you know, norms and traditions kind of vary from state to state, county to county, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I've never been to family court in Texas. I can't tell you if it's normal to chain attorneys who you perceive as getting out of line to the jury box or to a chair in the jury box yeah. or whatever. But now we have like someone who's actually an authority here saying, actually not okay to do that. But let's, let's get some more content. Who is this judge and what exactly was going on? Her name is Judge Barbara Stalder, and she's a family court judge in Houston. So this actually happened on two separate occasions. Um, both times, the attorneys had exchanges outside her courtroom that she just didn't like. She caught wind of them, lectured them, and ordered the bailiff to escort them to the empty jury box where they were cuffed to a chair (laughs) and forced to watch the remainder of their hearings go on without them. That's the really crazy thing, because it's not even something in open court. This is like back channel scuttlebutt that she picked up, or it was like, hey, you're, you're like talking smack about me outside, like outside the courtroom. I mean, that's that's I mean, not that it would be OK in any context, really. But the idea that she kind of was like back channeling with, I don't know, staff or people who overheard them. How did this like get funneled to to this like oversight commission? It started with a complaint from one of those attorneys. So mm-hmm. solo practitioner Derek Salisbury, he mm-hmm. was the the attorney in the first incident. And he said He was having an exchange with um, the mother-in-law of his client in the hallway, and it got a little heated. And also, his client was a family member. So I think there, you know, there's some familial tensions at play here. Yeah. But so we had this exchange. Judge Stalder 
somehow heard about it or overheard it and um, called him up to the bench, asked him about it. Um, he admitted to using profanity in the conversation in the hallway. Um, and the judge then lectured him on professionalism and demanded an apology. Salisbury refused to give that apology. And that's when he <laughs> was shackled. Sh shackled. I mean, let's just say it again so people <laughs> understand that word. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the hearing went on for, I guess, about 20 more minutes while he was stuck there, unable to participate. His clients just out in the wild. Yeah. Um, I think this both of these were um, hearings on protective orders. So yeah. this is also kind of really sensitive stuff. Well, what was the other case? So while the commission was investigating this first case, they discovered that it had happened a week after that um, again. And this happened with um, attorney Samuel Millage. So this, basically the same thing happened. The judge somehow learned of an exchange that Millage had with a court staffer um, outside of her courtroom. She lectured Millage and then had him cuffed to the jury box. And what's more, in this one, she said that she would actually be keeping him there until she was finished with her morning docket. That's and so then, crazy. <laughs> and then she would talk about contempt proceedings with him. You will sit there and think about what you've done, sir. Yeah. So Millage has a, uh, a son who's an attorney. And while he's sitting there, handcuffed to a chair during a hearing, he texted his son and his son showed up to represent him in this very interesting situation. Told the, his son said, look, my dad has another trial that he needs to attend. <laughs> please let him go. So <laughs> the bailiff let him go. There was a whole heated exchange then that happened between Millage and the bailiff. And then it spilled over with the judge. And I guess she told him to never set foot in, in her courtroom ever again. And then she apologized to them the next day. It was a whole thing. Look, I was in a bad <laughs> headspace, you know? Um yeah. Sometimes but you fly so, off the handle and lock people in a jury box and tell them to stay there all day. I mean, that's relatable. It, it I mean, I, you know, I mean, it happens. Um, <laughs> no, that's crazy. Um, but the uh, so what did the uh, conduct commission here um, have to say about it? Really quick before we get into that, I yeah. do want to mention that the judge disputes how both of these things went down. OK, but uh, to your question the Judicial Conduct Commission was not swayed by anything she said. It said that her behavior demonstrated failures to be patient, dignified, and courteous toward the attorneys. Um, and in Salisbury's case, the judge also willfully disregarded his client's rights to be heard. And I should also mention that Judge Stalder's term as a Harris County judge ends December 31st. She actually lost her re-election bid in the Democratic primary in March. So mm. this is kind of her, uh, kind of her swan song. Swan song. I, guess. <laughs> I was gonna say, did you? Uh, her what swan a way to go out to a jury box song. Yeah, I, I mean, what a way to go out. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, that's that's. I mean, I'm glad. I mean, we've got we we've had two Texas stories today, both fairly crazy in their own ways. Um, but it's a wild place. Yes, yeah. Um, but that's it. You know, we we do talk a lot about like the authority that judges have within their courtroom is like, it basically is their little fiefdom or whatever, but there are obviously like limits to it, which the, which the commission um, is obviously exercising here. So um, 
super interesting story. Um, I think that that is uh, as good a place as any to leave us off. Um, thanks for being with me this week, Haley. Appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. We have so many people to thank for helping us make Pro Se, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Stephen Lerner, and contributing reporters, Jessica Corso, Craig Clough, and Rachel Ripito. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps people find the show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.